We are in chapter 4 now of Ephesians. And uh, I trust that God will bless us this morning in the reading and hearing and preaching of His Word. So let me read to us Ephesians chapter 4, the first few verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So ask for God's help in this this morning. Father, we pray that your one Spirit would unify us by giving to us clear teaching this morning and helpful teaching, that you would open my mouth in a helpful way, and that, Father, we would receive it, and that it would be helpful to us. We pray this in the name of your good Son, Jesus. Amen. So there have been three chapters in Ephesians so far. It's basically almost exactly half of the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And you might summarize that as being who we are, how we have been made that way, who is responsible for making us that way, and that we are completely, utterly, totally dependent on the one God in all that we are, just as Rick just prayed. And the second half, starting in chapter 4, is a transition away from uh, the definition of who we are into the definition of who we ought to be. Um, That we are God's children, therefore we ought to act like God's children. And it's an important thing to note that this is a distinctive of what it means to be a child of God, that first comes the making of the child of God and then the acting like the child of God. And it sounds like that should be obvious because after all, a child who has not yet been born to a family can't act like his family because he doesn't exist. Um, But oftentimes what happens is we are not born and we are told to be like a child of God. Um, Just to the unbelieving world is not act like a child of God, but repent of your sins so that you might become a child of God. And that's a different message. When we are repenting of our sins as a child of God, it is not for entrance into the family. It's because we know who our family is, and so we feel a different sort of weight when we sin as a Christian. And so I want to encourage you this morning to start with that if you have faith in Christ Jesus, you are a saint, a holy one. 
made perfect by the precious blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. Without fail, by the power of His Spirit, He will bring you to the end safely, to the eternal inheritance that He has given to us in His Son. And that there is not one who will ever slip from that surety. And so if you are in Christ and you have been made a child of God, there is no sin that can prevent you from entering the kingdom. But if you've not been made a child of God, it is your sin that will prevent you from entering the kingdom. And so it's important to note that the, the things that are preached generally on Sunday mornings by me are similar to the sorts of things that Paul says, and they should be in line with what Paul says. Uh, they are to be understood as exhortations and encouragements to children of the living God. Um, if our church begins to grow, perhaps, and people come who don't know the Lord, the preaching will be more split. Um, you have to kind of hit both sides of the table, as it were. Um, but the reason I encourage and exhort you as I do is because I believe that we are children of God. And as children, we ought to act like children of God. And Paul also wrote to the Ephesians with a similar sort of message. You are, so therefore, act. But he goes to great pains in the first three chapters to tell us why we are. We're predestined before the foundation of the world in love to be made children of God so that we might perform good works. We are predestined before the foundation of the world to become children of God to the praise of His glorious grace. We are predestined before the foundation of the world so that we may, might, might be made perfect. We are predestined before the foundation of the world and we are guaranteed an inheritance that is unfading, eternal, and kept for us. Over and over and over, who is the actor? Who is the perfecter? Who is the maker? Who is the sustainer of all things? It is God. And so the first chapter, you might say, is just the introduction to the thing Paul is about to tell us. And then chapters 2 and 3 are Paul proving to us that it is in fact an impossible thing to be made the child of God. And the impossible has been done in Christ Jesus. And now that we know that there is an impossible thing that can be done and has been done, we can now begin to trust God for the continued impossibility which is acting like children of God. Because just as much as we are dependent on the Spirit and His power to get us from dead to alive, hostile towards God and each other, to non-hostile in family, we are dependent now just as much to be made righteous before God. That the, the, the dependence upon the Spirit to make us righteous before one another is just as much a, a necessity as it was to be brought up from the grave. That we do not become less dependent on the Spirit as we grow in Christ. But we are the same amount of dependent on God. So that's the introduction to the second half of Ephesians. And so we're going to deal a little bit with the first few verses. Several times now in the book of Ephesians, Paul has referenced the fact that he is a prisoner. And again, here in Ephesians chapter 4, that's how he starts it. That's how he started chapter 3. 
For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. In the middle of chapter 3, I don't want you to lose heart because of what I am suffering, which is imprisonment. If you read Paul's letter, as we did last year, to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, over and 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 over in those letters, he says, you will suffer for my name. Preach the gospel, suffer well. Suffer with me. Don't forget to suffer. You will suffer. It's inevitable, you will suffer. And it's not just Paul in his letters to the Ephesians and to their pastor Timothy. It is absolutely the message that is everywhere present in Scripture. Old, New Testament, from beginning to end. If you walk in a manner that is the same as a child of God, you will suffer. So this is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightening in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. To the Thessalonians, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For you are brothers and you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Again to the Thessalonians. But you, you though, sorry, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. From the Psalms. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. And he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way and over the man who carries out evil devices. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. And though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong because the Lord upholds him. 
Or perhaps a more familiar psalm, Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's walking, right? Walking in the way of the Lord. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. And then our Lord, the famous Sermon on the Mount, these two Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on mine account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then finally, the living out of this in the testimony of the church in Acts. After being warned and beaten, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. I could continue on. I have pages and pages and pages. And that's just what I decided to put on the pages. The pages of Scripture are one testimony. If you love and follow God, the world will hate you. And it will try to devour you. Because the world is under the sway of our great enemy who is a devourer of people. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is a mark of true faith. And it is true from beginning to end. It is Cain and Abel. And it will be that way until the Lord returns and takes us. And we are forever separate from those who hate Him. That is just true. So why does Paul make the effort and why does God make the effort to tell us this over and over and over and over and over again? Because we often think that we can do all of this easily by ourselves in our own strength. We just think every day when we get up, I've got today. I can handle this. That person at work, that guy down the street, my neighbor, the city, whoever is your enemy for the sake of righteousness. So this is distinct from your enemy because you are not righteous. You will have enemies in this life because you are not good at times. These are not God's enemies. These are your enemies because of your sinfulness. But the enemies that you have because you are faithful to God... These enemies, we think often, I can handle this. I've got this. I'm a persuasive person. I I know how to reconcile people. I have good thoughts and training. I know how to get us through. And it comes out in a thousand ways. One of the most 
common ways it comes out is we often think if we were in charge, things wouldn't be this way. Why do we think if we were in charge, things wouldn't be this way? It's because we actually think we have what it takes to right the world. So-and-so is the mayor, the governor, the senator, the representative, the president, the other president, the prime minister, whoever it is, we think if I was there, none of this would be happening. I would make all things right. I would be able to fix all those problems. I would get rid of all the people. I love our presidents. All of them, because they were ordained by God. So that means I loved President Trump. His one great overbearing sin was that he thought he had everything it took to fix everything. He was never humble before God. He never said, I can't actually do this. He was in many ways like Nebuchadnezzar. He did many good things, but ultimately, is smart, confident, whatever he is, he could not fix the world. How does that manifest to us on a daily? What, what is that? Okay, uh, all right, I admit, even if I were president, I couldn't fix everything. Even if I were governor, couldn't fix everything. Even if I were the mayor, couldn't fix our town. Okay? Day by day, this is the same sort of idea we have in every situation in life. We think of one another, if I were in their shoes, that particular suffering would not have happened to me because I could have figured out how to get through it without the suffering. We think that we could solve everybody else's problems but our own. And everybody thinks the same about us. What do we actually need? Why does God go through such pains for the first three chapters of Ephesians to tell us that He is the only one to solve the world's problems and He has done it and will do it? So that when we are actually in the midst of suffering and we see one another suffering, that we won't be so proud as to think, I could have done a better job than that. They're probably not actually suffering for righteousness' sake. They're probably suffering because they were a jerk. We think this of each other all the time. As though suffering were not ordained by God for His children. It is absolutely flip-flopped the other way, and it's so that we might be humble with one another. You read this passage that I just read, and you just keep going, and the whole of chapter 4 could be summarized by saying, the unity of the body is the goal, and it can only be accomplished by the Spirit of God. And so right here, after Paul says, I am a prisoner for the third or fourth time in this letter, and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, 
Why does he immediately go into that kind of a thing? If, if it were unifying, we're after, we could just unify around common causes and everything would be fine. But he says this is the problem. What happens when we suffer is we flip-flop things. We think we are the ones who can solve it. And so therefore we stop loving one another. Conflict within the church comes in the midst of suffering. I was just at Presbytery this past week. Um, up in Bloomington. Um, it was wonderful. Uh, there was a pastor's conference beforehand, which was very helpful. And our presbytery is growing. And that's good. We welcomed in a minister from Wisconsin who is transferred in from the Evangelical Free Church named Jeremy Vandergallion, who's been a friend of the presbyteries for many years and has now come in as our pastor. And so now we have two men serving in Wisconsin in churches outside the bounds of our presbytery. So they're serving in, like, you know, it's the equivalent of, like, if I were to be the Baptist pastor church, Baptist pastor church. If I were to be the pastor of the Baptist church, but still part of the presbytery, that's what they're doing. So they don't have a church with an evangel, but they are an evangel pastor. It's a little complicated. If you want to talk to me about it afterwards, that's fine. Um, but our church, our, our presbytery is growing, and we now have eight students in our pastor's college, which means in the next three years, we will have new pastors ready to be ordained and serve in God's church. It's very good. It's wonderful. And, and so each presbytery, three times a year, um, I give a report on us. So I have to think and pray. What am I going to tell the men of the presbytery about us? So what do you think I told them? I told them that we were suffering. It's hard. I feel it. Our church name, although unknown to many until recent months, is now known to many. And it's known in two ways, primarily. There are three responses now that our church name gets. If you haven't seen this yet in our community, you will. First response, which is the majority response, is they've never heard of First Presbyterian and don't know anything about us. Okay? That hasn't changed. There's still a great number of people who don't know anything about us. And that's not through any particular fault of ours. That's just the nature of people. We don't know about them. Second response is this. This just happened to me just a few weeks ago. Someone will walk up to you and they will look around and they will talk quietly and they will say something like this, which is exactly what they said to me. Hey, Joe. Thanks for writing that letter. And then they won't say anything else to you probably and they will... Go away. That's encouraging in one sense, isn't it? But it's discouraging in another. We wish that the letter would have emboldened people to walk loudly with us. Um, but we're glad for the faithfulness of many who feel the weight of the third group, which is much more difficult. And these are the enemies not of us, but of God. Because this is the third response. Say you go somewhere and you're at the counter 
And for whatever reason, well, this happens more with me because people ask me what my job is, but if you're out and about and you happen to have to mention the name of our church, uh, I, my name is Joe Hell. What do you do for work? I'm the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church. That kind of a movement from settled and relaxed talking to someone to a stiffening spine, a flash of the eyes, a terseness of words. They probably will not say anything to you that they don't like you, but you will know. And that happens too. I want to encourage you that to suffer for the sake of Christ, which I think is exactly what our two churches are doing, is hard. And it can lead to division. Because we're not going to say to the guy who tightens his spine and looks at us funny, you know what, I saw that. You ought to repent. We're not going to do that, are we? Because we actually love people. And we're not actually trying to bully anyone into the kingdom of God. And so what happens is you've felt that tenseness over here. The only people that you feel as though you can talk to about it are in this room. But you don't know how. And so it comes out in lack of humility, lack of gentleness, lack of patience, lack of bearing with one another. And so it is God's kindness to put these things together, that we need the same supernatural help that brought us from death to life to endure with patience suffering together for the unity of the body. And so here's the second thing I told the presbytery. Because the inevitable question that you will get asked by anyone who actually talks to you very long and supports us in any way is, have you lost anyone? I mean, has anyone left the church? And by God's kindness and no other reason, we can faithfully, happily say, no. No one has left our church. No one has left True Vine Baptist Church. But it is not because we're somehow stronger, better, more faithful, more kind. Ability to bear is just, we have broader shoulders than everyone else. We don't. You don't. I don't. The only reason that we have not come at one another is the Spirit of God has kept us. And we need Him all the more. The days will not grow easier as we continue to be faithful to God's Word. God does not promise us that the crosses will not come. He promises to every day bear it. By the power of God, we can. He raised us up from the dead and made us children of God when we were once enemies. He can and will and is glad to sustain His church and the unity of the body by the power of His Spirit. And so those are the two things I told the Presbytery on your behalf. I talked about things personally, and like, you know, the fact that Sarah's expecting and that sort of thing. But what I talked about our church was we're suffering because of this letter in ways that we did not predict or understand or know might happen. And God has been faithful to us 
and that we have not broken in half over it. But we ought not to get pride over these things because we need to continue to support and love and bear with one another. And so this is the third piece, right? So if walking worthy of the call to which you've been called leads to suffering, perhaps imprisonment like Paul, or the pilfering of your property like the Hebrews, or the beating of the apostles like in Acts, and we need the power of God's Spirit to actually keep us together, well then, we should actually be together. Don't, for the sake of trying to save face or for the hope that maybe you can find a body that doesn't have to suffer, think that that's out there. Let's be together. Bear with one another. Be humble with one another. Be gentle with one another. Some of us are more weak than others at different times because God gives grace in different measures and in different manners to us at different times. Be kind to one another. Knowing that it is God who has brought this upon us and not we ourselves. Because to speak the truth makes the enemy violently angry. And he will not be quiet when he has once been provoked. But the reality is, there is a God who made the heavens and earth and holds all things in his sway. And we, if we are faithful, are on his side together. The many battles in Scripture, there are very, very few which is why they are quite famous, that are of one man against an army. It is the people, 95% of the time, who are united in the battle. It's why we know the name Samson. It's why we know the name David. They were one man against an army. But we don't know the faithful thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands who were united in battles that God also was with them in. And actually, through the thousands who were faithful, they conquered the land, not through one man. We are to be together. We are to be faithful. And we are to hope that the God who saved us can sustain us in the midst of great trials. And he will. And he is. I'm going to pray briefly and then we're going to do communion this morning. Take communion this morning. Father, we are very grateful.